We'll turn to John 15 this morning. Those are good words for my soul today. Uh, In the midst of a life filled with cares and many, many cares that press upon us, those are good and kind words from God. So I love that hymn, absolutely. John 15, a little bit of a one-off sermon. Uh, Having wrapped up Ecclesiastes last week, uh, next Sunday, Darren will be uh, preaching uh, while I work on classes this week. Um, And then the week after that is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, And so we're going to spend some time thinking through Scripture that way and celebrating life and God's gift of life and really wanting to ensure in the midst of a, frankly, a world gone crazy uh, in relation to infanticide and genocide uh, to understand what the Bible has to say about the preciousness of life. And then, Lord willing, we'll embark on a journey through 2 Corinthians after that. Uh, had enough of a break from 1 Corinthians, but yet still close enough. Hopefully, those truths will begin to build in our heart with the way God talks about church uh, and, and help us to continue to grow and change. But John 15 this morning, uh, headed into a new year. It's a time where we all so frequently make resolutions or goals. Uh, I always encourage folks to make spiritual goals, set out goals for the next year, whether it's in relation to Bible reading or scripture memory. Uh, evangelism, discipleship goals, family worship time uh, together, but personal spiritual goals. Uh, And and I want to kind of build on that a little bit this morning and help us to think through uh, the way we grow and change in Christ, the process that we call sanctification. We understand you get saved, but then there's a lifetime of growing and changing to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. When you come to the New Testament, Uh, There are a number of key chapters that teach you about sanctification. Uh, So whether you want to go to Romans 6 uh, to really think about sanctification in the sense that we have been dead with Christ and we need to know this truth, we need to reckon it to be the truth, and we need to then yield ourselves to Christ. Or whether you go to Ephesians 4, uh, which has the concept of putting off old dirty clothes and putting on new clothes, so we are to put off the old man and put on the new man. Uh, whether you go uh, to the book of James and, and think about the understanding of faith and works uh, combining together as we grow and change. You go to Hebrews 12, uh, which is talking about running the race of faith. Uh, so there's a number of texts in scripture that we could go to and key chapters that help us think through that. My favorite one, though, uh, and the one that Christ speaks into is in John 15. In John 15, what you're going to find is the process of sanctification in specific language. And the language is all wrapped around this illustration of gardening. I'm going to start, though, with this question that I borrow straight from Paul Tripp. Uh, I love these questions. They've been profoundly helpful in my life as I think through sanctification. And they're ones that you've heard me say, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, my poor children probably thousands of times, where do you need to change first? to be like Christ? And where do you need to change most to be like Christ? When you and I think about sanctification, the truth is that it is easy to be overwhelmed and consider there's so much about me that needs to change to be like Jesus Christ. Uh, There's so many things that I need to do different. There's things that I need to put off and put on. Uh, As a matter of fact, you you feel like if you spend much time meditating or being uh, seriously introspective about your spiritual walk, Uh, You just feel like there's so much that needs to change, and it's easy in our humanity to then give up and have a sense of despair. There's so much that needs to change, so what's the point? 
And even those areas of my life that I feel like I've been working on so hard to try to grow and in my sanctification, I feel like I take two steps forward and one step back and there's so much effort for so little fruitfulness. And so it's astoundingly helpful to step back and first of all be reminded God is not frustrated or irritated with you. Uh, If you're a believer, you are his chosen child. He's rescued you. He's redeemed you. He knew exactly what your sanctification process was going to be like. He's not sitting in heaven irritated and mad. Uh, but rather he loves you, uh, he's drawn you to himself, and now he's doing a work in your life. And so it's helpful to remember that truth and then to step back and then ask, where do I need to change first then? Where do I need to change most to be like Christ? With that in mind, John 15 finds us at a key moment in the life of Christ. And the context is important. We're right after the Last Supper that we broadly know. Uh, Christ has spent time with his disciples. He knows this is the night he's going to be betrayed. He knows that he's going to be headed to the cross within the next 24 hours, and he's going to be dead and gone. And so what we find in John 15 are words of Christ. They've gone through the meal. They've come to that point uh, where where Jesus has said, one of you is going to betray me, and the disciples are asking, is it I? Is it I? Uh, Judas ultimately, Jesus washes their feet, then Judas leaves. And then Jesus celebrates what we now know to be the first example or illustration of communion, uh, the Lord's table as he celebrates that only with the believing 11. He then takes them on a journey uh, and he walks to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and literally Gethsemane means olive press, and so it's an olive garden. And as he walks into this olive garden, it's a particular time of the year, and it's immensely helpful for us to know when this is, that this season is right at when we would celebrate, uh, obviously, Easter and, and Passover. And so we know the time of year that it is. And at this time of year, we can know exactly what was going on in the Garden of Olives. And what was happening was it was the part of the season where the farmers were going through on a daily basis, and they were looking at the branches, And what they would look for on the branches are buds, flower buds. And the flower buds eventually are going to burst forth as the spring goes on. They're going to develop into olives and they're going to be fruitful. And as they would walk through the garden, the farmers would go through and any of the branches that did not have these flower buds, they would prune them off the tree. And so as Jesus and his disciples are walking through the Garden of Gethsemane, all along the ground in various spots, there would have been gatherings of wood, wood that had been cut off the tree, piled up, waiting to be turned into firewood or to be carved into olive wood, uh, little sculptures or figurines to be sold in the market, to just be used for household fires, what have you. But these are all the branches that had borne no fruit. They would cut them off, and then they would even burn them, build fires. And so as they walk along through the Garden of Gethsemane, there are these piles of branches around them. Secondarily, there are ropes uh, holding up heavier branches because as some of the branches they would notice had a lot of buds on them and so they're going to be weighed down with much fruit and so they would go through and they begin to rope them up, up together to support the weight because what they did not want to happen is the weight of the olives as they grew and they flourished to bear down these branches and either break them or the fruit be spoiled by running along the ground. Then there's other parts where, where they, as they're seeing this, there's fresh cut marks where they're just pruning off. Maybe you'd have an otherwise really healthy and fruitful branch, uh, but there's small saplings coming off of it and sprigs, and that's going to drain the, the energy away from producing the best fruit. And so you have large branches that aren't bearing any fruit laying on the ground, mingled in with that pile. You have all these prunings cut off. You've got fresh cuts on the tree. Uh, you, you've got ropes bearing it up, and that's all what's happening as they walk through the garden. Jesus is the master teacher. And so he loves to use illustrations. And so here we have this this penultimate moment then, 
where this is really the final instruction from Christ to them. We have some mingling of some other sermons, but this is the moment where he's going to address all of the disciples together. We can think of them in many ways as the the last words of Christ in that sense. So whatever he's going to say here, we know is of incredible importance. Secondarily, he's only speaking to his faithful disciples. Judas is already gone. Judas is probably on his way to the high priest officials in order to bring them back to betray Christ with the epic kiss on his cheek. Jesus is looking around now, and then we find him speaking in John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When you look at the text, there are three things that are going on. Two of them are immensely obvious, and one of them is inferred from the text. First of all, God prunes fruitful branches. Secondarily, he purges barren branches. And then thirdly, he is the one who delights in the fruit. And I would think that that would be obvious to us, this delighting portion, but it is the only portion that isn't uh, didactic instruction. He doesn't come to a point where he says, now God loves the fruit, but but that's what gardeners do, right? My grandfather was a gardener, and a hobby gardener, uh, and he's one of those the gardener kept growing. And so it was almost like my grandparents got older, they needed less, and he grew more. And uh, he he would build out this plot of land, and he would till it, and he would sow it, and he loved the fruit. And my grandfather would grow all kinds of things that you loved and would enjoy tomatoes and lettuce and, and corn. I remember driving up to my grandparents. It was so funny. Here it is in Howard County, the subdivision, and you'd see rows and rows of corn for my grandfather. And he also grew things like squash that they grow far more than anybody's ever going to eat, but it just is abundance. And, and my grandfather would go around, put it in paper bags, and he would just put it on his neighbor's porches. And we never left my grandparents' house without cucumbers and tomatoes and lettuce and squash and, and all kinds of other things. And he delighted in it. He, he got more delight out of the fruit than, than honestly anyone else. It tasted good, but just the work that he put into it and the passion and the zeal and to see it burst forth from the ground. He was zealous and passionate about growing this fruit and he delighted in it. The gardener is the one who ultimately would delight in the fruit. And that would cause us to ask this question then. Whenever we have an illustration like this, and we have this language and this, this uh, allegorical, really metaphor kind of imagery, we want to start asking, well, what does he mean? And the first one we, we've got to understand is, what is the fruit here? 
what is this fruit? Because it's so key to the text. It's at the center of his enjoyment. It's what he wants you and I to bear in our lives. It's what he's telling the disciples to bear in his lives. It's if there's a lack of fruitfulness, this is actually what leads to the cutting off, the purging of barren branches. So uh, the fruit matters a great deal here. And when we think through the text of the New Testament until this point, we really are left with a few options of what the fruit could be. But by some study and some investigation, you and I can figure out this morning, what is the fruit? Uh, This fruit he's passionate about, this fruit he wants to grow in our lives, what is the fruit? And so let's just talk about the options. Option number one, souls of people. Now, uh, I, I think that's a tempting option for sure, because there's a couple of times in the New Testament in particular where souls of people are likened to fruitfulness or to a harvest, right? We, we think back to the parables that Jesus tells, and one of them of the parable of the four soils. He goes out, he, sows, he tells us to sow seed. The seed is the gospel. It falls on four different kinds of soils that illustrate the kinds of hearts that people have in, in, in the gospel of Matthew. And he says, then what happens is a harvest comes forth. And that harvest there is the souls of people. It is people getting saved. You and I go and we proclaim the law, the gospel to our lost friends, neighbors, co-workers, people we care about, strangers we've never even met before. And we see them gloriously, God just lighten their eyes, draw them to himself, give them the gift of faith. They turn from their sins, they believe in him, and they're saved. And so we do have examples of that. Uh, we have Christ uh, standing outside in John 4 and uh, he, he communicates about the fields being white unto harvest, and, and you see people coming out and Christ saying that here, are, here is the harvest. And so we do have occasions in Scripture where harvest or fruitfulness are the souls of people. So our question here would be, is Jesus communicating that fruitfulness here are the souls of people? Well, no. And there's a couple of reasons why we can know that. First of all, that fruitfulness of the souls of people would be fruitfulness outside of us. We are sowing, but he's producing this harvest. Uh, We are giving the gospel, but any harvest, any fruitfulness is very much outside of who, who you and I are. In John 15, though, the fruitfulness is directly attached to you. It's fruit of your life, fruit of my life, not the product of gospel work, but rather something in us coming out of us. Additionally, there are branches that bear no fruit at all. And it's actually evidence of their need of judgment. What happens to those branches in this text that bear no fruit? They're cut off and they are burned. And without question, this is communicating eternal judgment. And I just want to be very clear here. You and I are called, every one of us, to be evangelists of the gospel. Coming to the end of 2020, it is a fair question to ask your own heart and to ask others, whom have you shared the gospel with in the last year even? We are called to be proclaimers of the truth. We are called to build loving relationships with folks. We are called to introduce them to Christ. We're called to not just live the gospel in front of them, but to proclaim the gospel to them, trusting God to do the work in men's lives. Having said that, Is there anywhere in the New Testament that you and I will suffer judgment, condemnation, if there has not been the product of enough fruit from our gospel endeavors? Well, no. In fact, we even learned in 1 Corinthians from Paul that he viewed ministry as his job is to be a good steward, and he is to be a proclaimer but to trust God for the fruitfulness. So for those reasons, this fruit in this text, the illustration is not concerning 
the souls of men. When we begin to put that together then, we begin to understand these are a product of something in our life. And so we realize that the fruit here has a lot more to do like the fruit in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you keep your finger here in John 15, you can go back and see this in the book of Matthew chapter 7. The product of a man's life in his fruitfulness. And so if you look in Matthew 7, a famous passage, verse 15. This is not the first time Jesus has communicated in this kind of language. We see this early on. And, and the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, it's not a sermon that Jesus would have preached one time, uh, but it's a sermon that he would have preached a number of times and portions of the sermon at various times in his ministry. The gospel authors at, at various spots will compile truth. And so Matthew helpfully puts the entirety of the sermon all together. But you find the key elements of the sermon in all the gospels. But here in this moment, in Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, if we pause just for a moment there, our immediate question then would be, what is the fruit? What is it coming out of my life that would evidence I'm either a wolf or a true sheep, a true teacher or a false teacher? And as you continue in the passage, you actually find that the people, the false teachers are confused by this. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. First thing we understand is good fruit is not a person who claims to be saved. Now that's an astounding moment for a lot of believers. It's a shocking truth for a lot of people. And so if I actually frame it in this way, could a person claim to be saved, even think they're saved, but actually not be saved? And the answer according to Jesus is absolutely. There will be people that show up at the judgment day and say, Lord, Lord. And they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the difference? Not what they say with their mouth, but what they've lived with their lives. And he tells you that, one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You cannot have a persistently disobedient believer. That does not mean that you and I will be sinless when we get saved. It does mean that we will live ongoing lives of repentance. That as we sin, we are convicted by the Spirit, we repent of our sin, we set on a course of growth and change. And so first of all, it's not by someone, a fruit is not a claim that you're saved. But you can press on, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Acts of ministry are not the fruits in this text. The things that you and I do. I've been in church my whole life, given to church my whole life. I've been faithful in my attendance, faithful in my Bible reading, faithful in my giving. God, didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? And he says, that's not fruit. And so it's not what we claim. It's not these acts of ministry. 
In fact, if we pause at this moment, and we would ask this question, does this sound like anybody that had been in Jesus' close group? Does this sound like he's describing anybody you and I would be familiar with from the Bible story? I mean, let's go back and read it again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did the disciples prophesy? Did they proclaim truth on God's behalf? Absolutely. Did they go out and cast out demons? Yes, Christ sent them out two by two, and they cast out demons. You remember, remember from a sermon several weeks ago, they were incredibly excited about doing that. And do many mighty works in your name? Did they not go out and were there not healings that occurred? Absolutely. And including Judas. It's almost like Jesus is describing him about two and a half years prior to John 15. And so if we're completely transparent with one another, we've come to a moment like this in the life of our church, and we'd have to be honest enough to say, There very well may be people among us who claim Christ and seem to do acts of ministry, but they're not actually believers. They're not actually saved. And we could miss it. If we put this together with other texts of Scripture, it's very clear that you and I will not always get it right, whom we think is a believer and who is not a believer. And so he tells them then in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And there we have the famous text that's turned into a a common children's church song. Uh, Rains go down, floods come up, right? House on the rock stands, house on the sand, it goes splat. This is not about prayers going up and blessings coming down, as the third verse in that children's song goes. But this is actually about obeying the will of the Father. Well, we would ask then, well, what does he mean by obeying? And that's why it's so helpful this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, exactly what the Sermon on the Mount has taught us. Living lives of peacemakers and mercy, of generosity and of spiritual humility. The works then are simply God in you coming out of you. It is Christ being manifested by our lives. This is the fruitfulness that he's looking for in its absence It's actually being revealed a person is not a believer at all. You can actually go all the way back and you can look at the other bookend of this in chapter 7, verse 12. I started you in so I could come to to this moment. Christ introduces this. Great teacher flows into this. What does it look like to obey Christ? You could boil it down to 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. What do we commonly call that? We call it the golden rule. It is the law of love. You could, you could boil it all down in Matthew 7 to say this. What is the fruit of your life or of my life? What is the fruit of a true believer's life? It is loving others, God and others, the way Christ would. And so this is literally Christ as the root in us, bearing out fruit through us. When we begin to understand that then, then that opens the pathway. This opens the door for us. Oh, okay. Can we think of any other text in the New Testament that would point us to look what it would look like for Christ to be in a believer, coming out of a believer. We, we, we can actually even ask it this specifically. Can we think of any other text in the New Testament that would communicate this in words that are like fruit language? Well, yeah, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. And if you and I were to go to Galatians 5, we can see it there. Verse 22 through 24, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This fruit comes out of every single believer, and yet we're also called to grow in these things. And so it's not when you go to Galatians 5 and you look at the fruits of the Spirit, it's not that you would look at that and say, you know, I'm a joyful believer, but I don't love others. Or I'm loving and joyful, but I'm constantly at war with others and there's no peace in my life coming out of my life. I I love and joy joy comes out of me, but I have zero patience for other people. There's no kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. The reality is this, all of these fruits are in you coming out of you if you're a believer. That does not mean, though, that they're not coming out of you. They don't need to come out of you in a greater way. You see that when you get to Galatians 6, verses 7 and 9, where he tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do you ever get weary in your sanctification? you ever get tired of getting frustrated with your kids? you ever get tired of being irritated with your spouse? Do you ever get weary of your proneness to selfishness and isolation? Do you ever get weary of your anger, your bitterness, your moping? Do you ever get tired of fighting the fight to pray? Do you ever get tired in your sanctification? When I read through those fruits of the Spirit, I wonder again, where do you need to change most? Where do you need to change first? You come to the end of 2020 and the the year of COVID, and we're not done with it yet. Um, I think trials reveal I think God presses us down, and and it's not that I think that, it's because the Bible teaches this. Trials reveal things about us. We're put into the fiery furnace, and it shows our faith where it's weak, and it needs to be purified. It shows our faith where it needs to be strengthened, where where there's dross that needs to be burned away, and trials reveal. and, And I think we've come to the end of a difficult, difficult year, and I believe the trial of this year reveals things about us. It reveals if we are inclined to love and serve others because the structures around us demand that we love and serve others. I think it reveals if we really are passionate about worship and and fellowship with others and loving God or if the structures around us have bolstered us to enable us to do it and you take away the structure and we don't do those things anymore. I think... Our schedule is a helpful scaffolding around the structure of our lives, but you take away this scaffolding, suddenly my prayer time and meditation time with Christ and and spending time just with Him and worship goes by the wayside, and we haven't yet quite recovered it. Trials reveal, I, I wonder how the last year has revealed where you need to change most and where you need to change first to be like Christ. I think it's at this point that a lot of people may get confused. So what is the real ultimate connection between fruitfulness and salvation? Because we know we're not going to be perfect. Standing here this morning, I'm far from perfect. So far. So far. It seems like the older I get, the more aware I am of how far I have to go. To be like Christ. How easily I am distracted by the cares and sorrows and worries of this world. 
And so we know it's not going to be perfection. What is the real connection then? And it's, and it's exactly what he's teaching us in John 15. When he tells us to abide in him, verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The reality is this, and I said it already this sermon, I just want to say it again because I want it to be so set in your heart and your minds. This is key moments. I never learned about how sanctification works until I was in my mid-20s. I spent most of my early Christian years completely confused and having no concept. How do I go from point A to point B? I know I'm saved. How to become like Christ? And it is a refreshing truth to realize this. Your sanctification is the direct byproduct of Christ in you, working himself out of you. And if you are a believer, there will be fruit. There will be growth. And so we, we then understand then the whole point of this is to embrace the work of the gardener as you and I pursue greater fruit bearing. What I want to do then is I want as much of Jesus to come out of me as possible. Uh, the people in, that are close to me in my life, uh, and I start with these concentric circles of my children and my wife, and I go beyond that. Really, the next closest people to me are you folks. I go beyond that to my family, beyond that, my brothers and my, and my, my parents and my sister-in-laws and uh, my brother-in-laws and my nephews and nieces, and, and then I go out to my neighbors, and, and they need to see Jesus. Among that group, there are lost people that desperately need to see and know Christ, and so Christ needs to be coming out of me. How then can more of Jesus come out of me? How can 2021... Make, make me more like Jesus than 2020 did. And so I want to embrace the work of the gardener in my life as I pursue greater fruit bearing. And so with that in mind, then we can turn to that first thing that happens. What does the gardener do? Well, he purges these barren branches out. He says it plainly in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And what does he mean then by taking it away? Uh, well, later, he says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Throughout Christ's ministry, he has used the same kind of language of the fire as the judgment fires of hell. And so let's, let's just put it in a way that makes, that makes us uncomfortable, right? What does God do with people who claim to know Jesus, who do works of ministry, prophesy, cast out demons, whatever, the whole list in Matthew 7, and yet they are not obedient to Christ. The fruits are not coming out of their life. Love, joy, peace, self-control, gentleness, kindness. They are not growing and manifesting the love of Christ, a love of God, and a love of others. What does he do with them? He will cut them off, and in the last day they will be burned and judged. It does not exist to have a fruitless Christian. That's an oxymoron. He says he will purge them, he will cut them off, and they will be burned. Walking through the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is saying this, it's so evident and so obvious. There's these piles of branches laying on the ground, stacked up high. 
The disciples know that once they get through the Passover week, the, the wood that has not been claimed by craftsmen and cannot be sold and made into something different, these other piles are going to be gathered around the city and, and they will actually burn them in the evening to push off the chill of the night air. They're going to be destroyed. All these barren branches are going to become ash. Judas was a barren branch. For three years, he traveled with Christ. He ministered beside him. He witnessed the lame walk. He saw the blind see. He saw the withered made whole. He saw the demon possessed set free. He even saw the dead made alive when Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb. And yet he rejected the truth. There may even be here some this morning that have others fooled. Maybe you've even tried to fool yourself. They that's the example Jesus gives in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord. And even as I say these words, your heart is burning in you. You want me to move on quickly? Don't dwell here. You're trying to remind yourself of all the sinful people in the Bible. And I just want to speak directly in your heart and ultimately really trust the Holy Spirit to do that. And I say to you, repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone. Die to you. Take up his cross and follow him. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ alone to save you. You're set on a new course then of following Christ in obedience to him. And today can be the day of your salvation. First Sunday we celebrate together in the new year can be the first Sunday of being a child of God. We want to ask then, what are the benefits of purging these barren branches? Because it seems harsh and difficult, right? Uh, we go through and we're cutting trees, <laughs> trees apart and we're hacking at them. And I, and I would give you a few benefits. It encourages the fruitful branches because then ultimately we will not be confused or discouraged by the lack of fruit in the other branches. Remember all the disciples there at the Last Supper, they're saying, is it I, is it I, is it I? They're asking that question because they are introspective and sensitive and tender to their own failings. They recognize, just like you and I do, that I'm not perfect. And so to have Jesus say, one of you is going to betray me, they all know that it would be in them to betray him, and so they're terrified. And so when Jesus goes through John 15, and they don't know yet, but they get to this moment that's going to happen within the next few hours that Judas is going to show up and be the betrayer. Then they're going to hear news of Judas's suicide out of his depression, his discouragement. Judas doesn't repent of his sin. He says, I'd rather die than repent of my sin is ultimately what it is. He's consumed by his own selfishness and his own grief. They now understand he was the barren branch. Now it makes sense that when Peter betrays jesus and says i don't know you why jesus shows up on the seashore fixes peter breakfast looks at peter and sets him on mission peter's sinfulness was not final his sinfulness was the sin of a true believer who then repents and turns back to christ the reality is for god to deal with barren branches this way encourages all true believers it encourages us because we are no longer confused by the lack of fruit in other people's lives. An earlier parable of Jesus, when he talked about tares being sown among the wheat, there was the question of Jesus, well, what do we do? Tares representing lost people, wheat representing the field of the church, really, is what he's talking about there. And he says, we have tares, we have wheat, what do we do? Should we go out and pluck out all the tares? And Jesus says, no, because invariably you're going to snatch out some wheat along with the tares. You'll mess it up. What he's telling us is this. When you and I look on the outside of one another, sometimes we would get it wrong. 
We would look at other people and say, well, they must not be a believer. They must be a tear. But in actuality, they're wheat. And then others, we would say, they must be a tear or they must be wheat. But in fact, they're a tear. And he tells us we don't have to be on mission trying to hunt that down. We can ultimately trust that to the judging hand of God. Now, to be clear, if you have someone in the midst of your community and they claim Christ, but they live in an unrepentant way, you should actually discipline them out. We're not looking for perfection, just a life of repentance is what he's telling us. But you and I would be confused, and so it encourages us that God ultimately will determine that. He ultimately one day will say, no, you never bore fruit, you were never a believer, you never repented and put your faith in me, you didn't follow me. Matthew 7, you didn't obey the will of the Father, you're condemned. It encourages us to recognize that God will deal with that. It shows us the strength of the gardener. He is the one who judges. He is the one in authority and power. And that should actually bring relief to us. We are called to proclaim the gospel. We are called to confront one another. We're called to encourage one another. But ultimately, he is the one who is the judge. We are not. Why would people struggle with this then? Why is this so difficult? And I think it's because right on the face value, it can seem astoundingly harsh to us. Here, this person is not manifesting the fruit of Christ. They haven't truly believed, and and yet you're going to cut them off and burn them. However, in the final judgment, we will actually glorify the Father. We will, we will give testimony. We will give assent at the judgment seat that God's judgment is true. We struggle here because we do, not, we do not see things as we ought to see them. We don't see the hearts of others, and, and so we hope for them to be saved. We struggle with the finality of their end. There is an appropriateness to this as we long for loved ones and friends that we see going into eternity that are lost. We long for them to be saved. We've seen it all too often, and and I don't mean this, I I don't mean this as a slam against the South, the Bible Belt. I don't. Uh, But having lived in the Midwest and having lived in the Northeast, I can tell you it exists in those places, but it is much more prevalent here. And this is what I mean. We live in the Bible Belt Christian South, right? Like all of, all of our neighbors are Christians. They all grew up going to church or vacation Bible school, what have you. Uh, most of the people you talk to down here, they claim to be a Christian. It's cultural as much as anything else, even though like the rest of the country, the South is quickly uh, turning away from that. And so there is a, a propensity to preach lost people into heaven at their funeral. What I mean is someone has lived a reprobate life, uh, but they prayed some prayer at, I don't know, 7, 8, 9 at Vacation Bible School on the bus, and they've lived reprobate, they've never obeyed Christ, they've never followed him, they've given zero evidence of salvation, they lived their whole life this way, then they die, and all of a sudden someone wants to whip out the salvation card and say, oh, but we know they're a believer because they're too uncomfortable with the alternative. I get the uncomfortability. I get it. But we serve no one by claiming a gospel that's based on words of a prayer and no evidence of a life. We actually do great damage to the lost when we do that. We had a dear lady in our church a number of years ago whose son passed away, and that was his exact situation. And she called, and I went and spent time with her, several meetings, because her greatest concern was that her son had entered eternity lost. She had no reason to believe her son was a believer whatsoever, no, no confidence. 
And so we had lots of conversations about trusting the wisdom and the righteousness of God. We ultimately don't know the heart, but we believe the word. And so we're going to trust his soul to God. We're not going to claim a lie. And so if people were to ask her, she was going to tell them, my deepest desire as that boy's mother would be that he was saved, but I have zero biblical confidence that he is. Can I talk to you about your salvation? And that's exactly what she would do. And then we went to the funeral. It was a packed house. And I sat two rows behind her, watching her shake her head no as the pastor preached her son into heaven. She was devastated by it. I had another meeting with her. She was angry. She wanted me to go and confront the guy. <laughs> like, I'm not sure that's going to play out well. But there's this tendency, I get the desire, but it does not love and serve others to do this. We need to trust in the power of God and the work of the gardener. When does this happen? Some will be purged during our lifetime. In other words, they will be taken from us and they have not been converted. Others will grow up in church and then run from the church. They will despise Christ. They will turn from Christ. They will no longer claim Christ. They will reject Christianity that they were raised in. They, they, they will be raised in Christian homes. They will attend church. They will be reared by their parents in a way to love and know Jesus. And yet there will come a point in their life when they have freedom and their freedom reveals. And the freedom of their lives then gives testimony that they did not know him. But until their dying breath, there is yet hope and a chance that someone will be converted. The ultimate timing of this is in eternity. Remember that this is the job of the gardener and not you. Not you. Do not judge others uh, in seeking to determine always what is their spiritual condition. Uh, I, I would say that as you disciple people, particularly as you parent, as you do marriage with a spouse that you're not convinced is a believer, you continue to share the gospel. Go back to the gospel, go back to the gospel, go back to the gospel, both in your living, but preeminently in your telling of it. Call them to repent and change. Call them to know Christ. Remember, Judas was the barren branch, but Peter denied as well. And so we move then on from the purging of the barren branches to the pruning of the fruitful branches. The pruning of the fruitful branches, uh, it comes through and it cuts you and I. It's, and so it's, if you're a believer here this morning, you've, you have confessed and you have repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ, and then what's going to happen is the gardener's going to come through and he's going to cut off parts of your life and my life that are preventing us from bearing forth fruit. And I don't know about you, but cutting never feels good. Uh, when I was eight years old and I went to this little boy's, it was kind of a Christian version of Boy Scouts. My dad was the leader of it and he was teaching us how to whittle. And my dad told me all these things about whittling and I'm supposed to use the knife this way and cut this way. And one of the things to win my little badge was to whittle a set of utensils. And so I was sitting there, I'm in the church fellowship hall, I'm whittling. Uh, and, and as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm looking around and my dad wasn't watching because there's this one part and I couldn't quite get to it. And, and I thought, well, my dad told me never to cut this way, but what, yeah, it, it'll be fine. And I cut that way and no sooner did I do that and I slid the knife right through my thumb down to the bone. I have a lifelong lesson of eight stitches and a deep scar to listen to your father. I wish I'd really heated that well at eight or nine. But cutting hurts. And the guy that used to work drywall one day picked up a sheet of drywall 
And when you pick up a sheet of 4 by 12 drywall, you start at one end, and you walk to the middle, and you run your hand along the bottom. When you get to the middle, it balances itself out. You can pick it up and carry it much easier. And so I picked up these sheets of drywall in a garage, ran my hand and it felt some stinging sensation in the palm of my right hand. Dropped the sheets of drywall, and I was scared to look at my hand because I knew whatever I'd done was bad. When I looked at my hand, all I saw was a black dot in the middle of my palm. Like, what is that? And then I turned my hand over, and an inch and a half drywall nail had gone straight through my hand. wasn't sharp enough to proceed out the other end. So I have this nail sticking through my hand. I want you to know, cutting hurts. When we get cut, it hurts. Well, it hurts physically, it hurts emotionally, it hurts spiritually. The fact of the matter is God comes into your life and my life and he prunes us. God can prune us through blessings, and he certainly does that. You can think of the blessing of having a child. God can use that to prune some selfishness out of your life. Um, the blessing of a new job, the blessing of uh, uh, academic career, the blessing of a spouse, the blessing of children, the blessing of responsibility. All these blessings can be used to prune us, but I think we're most acquainted with pruning through trials. We're most acquainted through pruning through difficulties, through illnesses, through maladies, through relational distancing, through financial hardships. As pressures come upon us and God is removing things from us, it causes us to realize I've prioritized things I shouldn't have. I've wasted my time up until now. And so God begins to prune us. What are the benefits? Well, very clearly in the text, it's so that we might bear more fruit. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. Which area of your life has the Lord recently been pruning? (laughs) Where has he been cutting you? And you might be thinking, well, I'm not sure. I'm in the midst of this difficulty or trial or I've got this pressure or blessing. And I'm not sure what God's trying to do. Well, that's where it would be helpful. And that's why we took the time there to go back to even the book of Galatians and look at the fruits of the Spirit and ask, which part of your life seems to need the most in this particular area? Is it love? Is it joy? Is it peace? Is it patience? Is it kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control? Are you suddenly confronted with the reality that you're actually not a very kind person? You think of yourself as kind, you think of yourself as nice, but the pressures and trials of life and suddenly what comes out of you isn't kindness at all. It's irritation, it's irritability, it's angst. You think of yourself as a patient person, you think of yourself as a person who can trust and rest in God and his sovereignty, but then trials start to come into your life and suddenly it begins to be revealed, you're actually a very anxious person. You're actually a very controlling person. And the reality is your patience was masked by the ease of life. You think of yourself as a gentle person, and then somebody steps on your toes in just the wrong way. What are the benefits of bearing, of pruning fruitful branches that develops greater ability to bear fruit? If you were to look at the benefits of the recent pruning that God has done in your life, why is he pruning you there? You know, one of the things I've realized and recognized pastorally is lots of times that it would be tempting to look at people and as you work with people in a counseling discipleship context and think this is where they really need to grow. You see things in other people's lives. I, I, you know what, you, I'm sure you see it in my life. I'm sure, and, and, I, and I don't, I'm not saying this like you're sinfully judging me, but you look at Steve and you, you say, you know, the, Steve really needs to grow here. You know, he's been our pastor, we've known him for a while, we see him, we love him. This is where he needs to grow. 
And I, you know what? You're right. I don't even know what area it is you're thinking of right now. You're right. You are correct. I need to grow. But then, then as you do life with me, God's bringing all these trials or pressures in my life, and it seems like he's not, he's not picking on me here. He's growing me way over here. And that's that moment where we get to sit back and trust God and say, you know what? God, you're in charge of the sanctification of others. And you're at work in their life to transform them to be like you. So what I want to do is instead of trying to insist, no, you need to grow over here. Come alongside, and how can I help you grow where Jesus is at work in you? That's why a very healthy conversation I have with other believers is very simply, where's God growing and changing you right now? And how can I come along beside you and be an encouragement to you in that area? Where do you need to grow first? Where do you need to change most? Now, here then is the question, then why is God picking on that area? <laughs> what are the benefits? And this is something I've learned over the years. If you will stand back and you will look at where is God trying to change you and grow you, just start listing what would be all the benefits if you became more like Jesus in that area. And as you grow in Christ, you realize it's cyclical, right? Like you'll go through a season where God seems to be really working on you and loving others. And then it's another season of joy, another season of patience, of self-control. Then you come back to joy again. Then it's self-control again. Then it's kindness. And it seems like this cyclical nature as you and I grow to be more and more like Jesus. But if you were to stop, even in this moment, where do you need to grow first? Where do you need to change most? And you were just asked, what, what would it look like in my life? if I look more like Jesus in that area. This is what I guarantee you'll find. If you're to list all that on one side, start listing on the other side of the page all the desires of your heart in regard to your spiritual walk. And I guarantee you what you will discover is they line up. A number of years ago, first time when I began, God began to use this in my life and was working on a particular area in my life, I began to list what would be all the benefits if God were to develop in me a deeper heart of gentleness, mercy toward others. And it was so hard because it's not where I felt like I needed to change the most and felt like I was falsely accused in that area and felt like people were overly harsh towards me, but it, was very, it became very clear that's what God was trying to do in my life. But then all the deepest desires of my life and my heart would be realized if I would indeed grow in that area. God is at work in us, and when will this happen? The fact of the matter is this pruning happens all the time. This is happening right now in this moment as you are getting preached to. It's difficult because it feels like you're getting beaten up, and it's cutting you. But this will result in a greater ability to bear fruit. So what area of your life has God most recently been pruning? Which area do you need to grow the most? I guarantee you will not grow and change if you don't at least engage intentionally with that prospect. I've had an unusually rare weekend. I was telling Darren before we came over, we meet together, we pray briefly. There's the, the level of pressures from different spots is just mind-boggling. And so just to, so to be so transparent, right, as a pastor, I've known for about five weeks I was going to preach this sermon. You would think I would be smart enough this morning to be like, oh, God's doing some pruning. Nope. That happens as I'm singing the first hymn, I run to Christ. 
And I absolutely believe that God is doing a pruning work in my life through the pressures of my life because he wants to grow and change me. And part of my effort and work, even this afternoon, will be looking at these and saying, okay, God, what, what fruit are you wanting to bear forth in my life? That leads us to the very last, well, we'll get there in a minute. I've already preached those. This is what happens when you prep a prezi weeks ago. God enjoys the fruit. My grandfather could enjoy uh, baskets of corn and squash. Certainly our Heavenly Father enjoys the fruit. Why does God enjoy it? Because it's the fruit of his labor. Notice that Jesus routinely throughout the text says abide. I've had a number of people over the years ask me, what does he mean by abide? Well, the word abide there means to dwell, to live in, to remain with. And when we understand that he said, if you notice this, he says at one point abide in me. Another point he says abide in my love. Uh, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So remain, dwell in Jesus is the same as remain, live, dwell in his love. Is there any text of scripture I could go to that would help me understand what does he mean by that? Absolutely. It's in, uh, back in Galatians again. And he says to walk in the spirit. And it's the law of love. Remember back in Matthew 7, 12, it is to love God and others. What does it mean to abide in Christ? To abide in Christ absolutely is your salvation, but what it means is to be asking this question continually. How can I love God and others more than I love me? To do that means to abide, to remain, to dwell in, and God is then doing the work in us, coming out of us. God enjoys the fruit because he's the one that ultimately is doing the work. Now, to be very clear, our sanctification does take effort. Our salvation is none of us, all of God. Our sanctification is this process of God empowering us and working out his work through us. It's God that delights in the fruit because he's the one that brings the fruit forth. Secondarily, he delights in it because he's glorified by it. You and I don't look the same. Uh, Part of the joy of doing church for a long time with other people is you get to see how Jesus changes them. And they're not the same person they are today as they were five years ago. You see more and more of Jesus coming out of them. You see people grow and change to be like Christ. And God is glorified in that because we know it's not them, it's God in them coming out of them. We know that God is doing a work through them. But then lastly, and this ties in directly with what we've been learning in Ecclesiastes, because it makes God happy and it makes us happy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Psalm 147, verse 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast, that's his his said love, his covenantal love, his never denying us love. This process of pruning is not a despairing, discouraging process. It's a joyful process. It's a hope-giving process that I don't have to be tomorrow who I am today. I don't have to be at the end of 2021 the same person I was at the start of 2021. I can actually be more like Jesus. There can be less frustration, less angst, less anxiety, less less irritation, less selfishness. I can be more like Christ and thereby experience the joy of the Father and Christ in me coming out of me. How can you embrace the work of the gardener as you pursue greater fruit bearing? Can I just ask you then, where do you need to change most? Where do you need to change most? And will you embrace the pruning that you may know the joy of the Father and bring him glory?